Listener Production. Oh, that there. We know what that is. The very familiar sound of the opening credits of Succession. Seared into my mm. mind. My favourite opening credits, Tom. Never skip them. I yeah. usually skip the opening credits of a lot of TV shows. I always watch the opening credits of Succession. Yeah, me too. I wanted to skip. I found I found them uncomfortable. I found the music haunting. But yeah, you're right. I couldn't bring myself to press that button. There was something intoxicatingly weird about them. Mm, especially this week, given that the series has wrapped up in what has been called the most feel-bad finale in television history. I, I tend to agree with that mm. description. It's not a bad one. Yes. Look, this episode will contain lots of spoilers. So just putting that up front, um, we are at the end and there is so much to talk about. It, it didn't get the ratings that other series have got. Like White Lotus, for example, had... Um, roughly double the amount of viewers. But this one has created so many headlines and so many conversations, Jan, from the fashion to the language to its reflections on on the real world, in in particular the Murdoch family who run the News Corp empire. Mm, That's because it is sort of loosely based on that family. If you haven't seen the show, you're a little bit confused as to what we're talking about. Succession's about Logan Roy, who's this billionaire media mogul, but really it's kind of about his very power-hungry, defective almost children who are jostling to succeed him. And Tom, the show's writer himself, has said that he's based that character of Logan on a few real-life media moguls, um, including Rupert Murdoch and his children. So that's, I think, part of the attraction to it is that we sort of know this real-life family that it's based off. Jan, there were so many good quotes on Succession. I think one of the standout features was the language, in particular the insults, <laughs> the swearing. They're really mm-hmm. good at swearing. Um, the writing room really knew when to, to drop a big F off. Um, that was Logan's probably catchphrase. One of my favourites was Kendall in this last season. He walks into that election party, looks at the crowd and goes, they're not all crypto fascists and right-wing nutjobs. We also have some venture capital Dems and some centrist ghouls. Dad's ideological range was wide. (laughs) You know the one that kind of clinched it for me? I remember hearing it and thinking, oh, and it's sort of at the heart of what this series is. It's Connor, who is the eldest of the Roy siblings, sort of this outsider who says to the rest of his um, brothers and sisters, the good thing about having a family that doesn't love you is that you learn to live without it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, that's strong. Um, It it spawned off so many different threads and conversations. One of them is this Instagram account called Succession Quotes Without Context. And, you know, when you just see a picture and the quote, you know, completely out of context of the show, you just realise how good and how kind of whack a lot of the writing was. Mm, not just not just the writing. It's sort of like people are commenting on the fashion. I follow um, a blog that just talks about, you know, the bracelets that Roman Roy was wearing in the last episode of the last season. And I think, mm. huh, I've never thought about that. But people are analysing it to such critical detail, you know, and there's heaps of memes as well. So it's really become this kind of cultural phenomena in a lot of ways. Yeah, and... Um I mean, how did you feel about it in the end? Well, I think I agree with how I described it, not me, but how I quoted it earlier in the show as saying it was the most feel-bad finale in television history, which I think kind of wrapped up the show for me that, like, you know, sometimes things are just a bit awful Mm. and people are just a bit bad and there's really no heroes here. There's no knight in shining armour that's going to ride in on a white horse. 
things are sort of just going to proceed a bit shit. <laughs> Which is not edify, like it's not the most exciting kind of inspirational way to look back at a show, but I, I kind of think that's how true it was to reality. Mm, and it's almost, I, I feel that's kind of how it started for me. I found the first series a little bit hard to get into because normally you're, you're drawn into the warmth of a character or, you know, you, you're sort of given a reason to love them, but you, you really weren't with any of these characters. But mm. you were titillated with hope that they might come good at various points, but they didn't. No, without spoiling it, it really did not. Let's get into it a little bit more now with screenwriter Michael Lucas. Michael has written on Offspring, The Newsreader, uh, Wentworth. He also happens to know Sarah Snook, who played Siobhan Roy in Succession. Michael, it hasn't been the most watched series of all time, but it has generated a huge amount of conversation and hype and acclaim. How would you sum up the impact of Succession? Yeah, well, I mean, I think shows about the media and the worlds of business and finance and everything like that maybe have a limited audience in some respects. But if you work in the media, you get obsessed with it. And I think that the viewership of Succession was clearly very verbal on all sorts of social media platforms and there were journalists that were writing articles. I don't know, for me, it has stood out of a show that's kind of taken the best of premium television today and what it can do and combined it with some sort of classic television tropes that date all the way back to dynasty and things like that. I think it's just a really successful combination of things. Hey, Michael, you're a writer who, you know, you've written a bunch of TV shows. I'm always curious about this connection with real life characters because that's the thing about Succession, right? Like it's based on the Murdochs and they exist in real life. I'm just kind of curious, like how much insider dirt or hot goss do you actually need to create a show that's so intricate about a real-life family? Like, does somebody need to be inside the operation leaking info to writers or how, how does that world get built? I don't know that someone necessarily needs to be in there leaking to writers, but definitely a lot of research helps. And if you can find people, particularly people that have been in the world and are now out of the world, I think is the most valuable sources to find. And one thing that I would say is drama is really well positioned because if you were a journalist approaching someone to give you all the dirt about a world, then people are going to freeze up because they're worried about defamation and all sorts of things. But if you say, we're doing a completely fictional show, we just want juice and it will all be fictionalized, then people, in my experience, really open up. There's no better way to get people to open up than to say that you're going to create this fictional world, but just give me all the goss that you can. And it's pretty clear that there were definitely, you have to think, some links to the Murdoch world. Yeah, well, there were reports that Rupert Murdoch basically silenced Jerry Hall through their divorce settlement and banned her specifically from leaking or sharing ideas with succession. Yeah, I feel like maybe it would have been good for him if he got on to um, stopping her leaking from Vanity Fair beforehand as well. But yeah, I mean, I understand the anxiety about it. I think most of the world thinks when they're watching succession that they are kind of getting an insight into the Murdochs, rightly or wrongly. But I mean, the parallels are stark. And of course, the writer... Jesse Armstrong, you know, 10 years prior wrote a screenplay about the Murdochs that couldn't in the end be produced, I imagine, because of the legal difficulties it was going to sail into. So, I mean, the links are pretty clear. 
Okay, just in terms of the writing though, how do you go about or how would you go about as a writer sort of creating a character that's based on this really well-known media mogul, in this case uh, Rupert Murdoch, how would you go about creating a character that's not derivative, that's not a copy, but that still speaks to someone who is real while also being its own unique thing? Well, firstly, you know, it does begin with a whole lot of research and you're just you just wanting those juicy stories and those intricacies of the character. But at the end of the day, especially when you're working in a fictionalised version, you're always going to veer towards what makes it the most dramatic. And my understanding mm. is that, you know, one thing that's different about Rupert Murdoch to Logan Roy is that Rupert is actually face-to-face, apparently... <laughs> Like quite a genial, charming. People always say, "Oh, well, if you met him, actually, you'd you. It's hard not to like him face to face." And I don't think you'd say Logan Roy is in that category necessarily. He seems terrifying and bombastic no. and and brutal. Um, so I think in that case, they've kind of they've made a decision that's kind of better for the drama. Um, but they've mixed it with all the ingredients they know, all the all the details that they've clearly gleaned about the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that they've looked at the what it is like for those dynastic media families, and there's clearly a lot of drama there. And then they've adjust, they've sort of built characters to really pick up on every one of those points of drama. And then drilling down to the language, what did you make of it? It's you know, fame for its incredible insults, basically. I think where yeah. where Shakespeare was famed for kind of flowery metaphors, this show almost went a similar direction, but in terms of the intricacy of its insults and how cutting and witty they were. What did you make of the language of the show and and how unique and powerful it was? I mean, basically, I drank it up. I mean, I still think of lines like, can't make a tomlet without cracking some Greggs and things like that. (laughs) Yeah, that is such a good, great line. That's one of my favourites. Can't make a tomlet without cracking some Greggs. If you haven't seen it, um, it's funny. If you have seen it, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> and even just recently, pain sponge, I think, is something that's going to come in handy, huh. uh, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely heightened. And, and I think you could see in the dialogue the writing process. I mean, obviously, Jesse Armstrong is this incredibly witty writer, given his credits. But he had this amazing team of writers that many of them in their own right are incredible. And clearly there was a lot of spitballing in the room. And 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 you can tell that some of the um, ideas in the dialogue and some of the <laughs> gags they have are so left field that I think speaks to how much time they must have spent together bouncing back and forth and mm. back and forth and back and forth. I mean, it was definitely heightened. To put it mildly, I seriously doubt Lachlan Murdoch is saying anything <laughs> that mm. um, cutting and witty, but <laughs> I feel like in the case of Succession, the cast was so good that they could get their mouth around that really dense and quippy dialogue, but at the same time still hold on to a sense of, you know, naturalism and and truth. But speaking of the cast, I know you said they were so sort of like intricate and authentic, but actually the actors were completely the opposite because two of them, two of the main ones anyway, were not even American. We have an Englishman um, who plays Tom Wamsgans, if I've got that <laughs> last name correct, and Sarah Snook, who is Australian, who plays um, one of the key characters, Shiv Roy. How good is it for her? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It is. I think everyone in the um, Australian industry would say the same thing about Sarah, which is boring but true that she is, you honestly couldn't happen to a lovelier person. Mm. And she had some great roles and was clearly emerging here beforehand. And basically anyone with eyes, ears and half a brain could see that she was like a generational talent and you just wanted her to get Mm. 
something where she could show off what she could do. And honestly, I mean, it couldn't have, it couldn't have been better. And then also, you know, I mean, she was, I think it's easy to forget. She was in her twenties still when she started this role and it was intimidating and scary. She had to go to New York Mm. and master an accent. It was a really intimidating job, but um, particularly in, in the most recent season, my God, she's just done some of the most incredible screen acting that you'll ever see, frankly. So I, I'm, couldn't be more thrilled. And I think anyone in Australia that's worked with her would say the same. I knew her for years, just kicking around Sydney, lots of common friends. And so to see her catapulted like this has been amazing. And I, I really am fascinated to see what's next for her. Um, I know it can be challenging to move on to the next thing when you've created such a strong character. Um, let's go deeper into what we actually learn from this series about the real world, about media moguls, even about ourselves. I mean, I think there's some deep themes about self-interest winning out over family love or any kind of collective interest. The, the context for that, which is this like extreme capitalism, the competition between the children of of big moguls and, and how those dynamics work and are so unhealthy. I mean, what do, what do you think we learn from it? For me, a lot of it, I mean, obviously there's the whole economic aspect to it and the, you know, corrosive effects of capitalism and, and, and obsession with power and status and everything like that. But I actually also think it's really a story about parenting as well in lots of ways. And, and um, you know, you're presented with these three damaged Nepo babies, mm. basically. <laughs> And I feel like as the series went on, I, 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 it was really notable that the series resisted giving them some sort of arc that led them to catharsis or led them to becoming better people or any of those things that you traditionally do in drama. Like they, they started very self-interested characters, you know, potentially brutal betrayals, and they only got more so. There were very few moments of grace between them. But I feel like as it went on, increasingly... Um, linked that to basically the kind of abusive relationship that they had emotionally and, and and even it was intimated physically at times with their father and then, of course, with the mother as well who kept protesting that she was not at all interested in this world but at the same time, as soon as she had her hands on them, was you know, her partner was pitching business ideas to them. Yeah, that's a really interesting point you make about a lack of catharsis for the three children and, and their story development. I think, you know, we all knew... The ending was going to leave us empty, but it was a strange feeling. It, it, it sort of, I don't know, stripped a sense of satisfaction from the viewing experience, but also was true to that story. And as you say, what seemed to be missing was genuine love from Logan Roy as a parent. And that was almost like a, a cancer for the character of his children. And, and there was even that moment at the end of the the third series where the three children come in to find out their father and their mother have duped them in the divorce deal and sort of struck them out of this power sharing agreement. And Roman says, you know, when he's asked, what, what does he bring? And he says, love. And <laughs> Logan Roy laughs in his face. <laughs> yeah. It was a bleak look at human nature. Um, there were no heroes. And also the other thing that it, traditionally in these sort of shows, if you have a lot of very ambitious characters and everything, the thing that you do to sort of highlight that is to bring in some sort of innocent or some sort of person who was pure hearted. They didn't do that at all. There was there was no one in there that, rep that you know, that in any way carried a sense of altruism or an ability to stick to any kind of ethical stance. So yeah, it was definitely bleak, but I still feel like they were clever about every now and again you'd see a kinship or a bit of 
um, humanity between them. I mean, even at the very end, mm. uh, they, they there was a moment when the three kids were together late at night just acting like kids and it was kind of like you got this little glimpse that maybe if circumstances were different and if they were raised different, they could have been just, you know, relatively functional humans and siblings, but that that was just not the way they were raised. It also made me sort of question the, the meaning it's trying to give us about children raised in this environment, whether they can really have a, a genuine evolution of their their skill set and their their characters when from day dot, and you know, there's that that line in the final episode where Kendall says he was told he was the one at seven years old and how damaging mm. that was, that that kind of inherited future just completely stunts your growth as a human being. I, d- I think it paints a really bleak picture of sort of generational power and generational wealth. And it's, I mean, even you reflect on it as, you know, in this year of the coronation and everything, increasingly... One thing I love about the show is that, you know, we've always known that there are these media legacy families, not to mention royal families, not to mention just the way that wealth and power in our society tends to flow down. And and it, and it is, it's just sort of something that is an accepted part of the world. I love that the show really makes you realise how surreal it is, how disconnected it is from merit. And then one step further, how potentially destructive it is for the person that is in that position, even though, you know, they might be obviously incredibly privileged, but, um, you know, is it, a, is it a healthy way to be bought into this world and an outlook to have? And then even more so is the person that's created by that actually in any way, you know, deserving of any kind of mm. position of power or influence. And this series would say no by the look. No, of not at all. Not at all. That was screenwriter Michael Lucas. So the dramatised series is over. The Murdoch family, though, well, that drama continues. Rupert Murdoch's in his 90s. Of the three children that are likely to potentially carry on his legacy, it seems like Lachlan is the most likely. He has the most senior position in the family business right now. But who knows how it pans out from here? Mm, Rupert Murdoch used to always say that his succession plan was not dying. Uh, I don't know if he can uh, execute that in the way that he likes. And he is 92, as you say. So I don't know. Maybe this is not the final season of Succession. Well, he's done a great job of not dying so far. So far. Listener.